This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents, which you can also access at cortezcurrents.ca. The Union Steamship Company served communities along the West Coast up until they were supplanted by airplanes and small motorboats in 1956. Few would have guessed that this was coming a generation before, when they were still the main way of transporting people and supplies. In the conclusion of her segment about the Union Steamship Company, Lynn Jordan talks about the company's twilight years. Her narrative starts during the Great Depression, when there were fewer passengers coming to Cortez Island. A group of people in Whaletown, including the Women's Institute, went to the Union Steamships and suggested that they do cruises up to this area. One cruise came to Savory and to Whaletown and left people off. Whaletown, I don't think, gained any people who came to live here, very few, if at all. But the Savory Island, which had been mostly empty at that time, property was purchased by a lot of Vancouver people, businessmen and doctors and that sort of thing, who had summer cabins on the island. Savory got their start because of the Union steamship. Another crew stopped at Whaletown, but it went up to Toba Inlet. They never really got off the ship except in town. It was a three-day excursion altogether and fairly cheap. The price of your ticket included all your meals. One of the Union steamships, ferry captains, retired to Whaletown. Captain uh, James Finley got his ticket on sailing ships around the Horn, and that allowed him basically to be a captain of just about any ship all over the world. He did do some freighting all over the world on these sailing ships. And then in the early 1900s, he hired on at the Union Steamship. For many years, they were purchasing new ships, most of them built in Scotland. And he went to get the first new ship to sail it from Scotland around the Horn back to to Vancouver. He did that for a number of them. So he was actually called the ferry captain. When he had retired, he chose Whaletown to stay. But he left his wife and two children in Vancouver, and they only came up for holidays and summers to visit him. Finley built two cottages, one for the kids and his family, on property which was across the street from where the Whaletown Clinic is today. The Davidsons own that property now, but it's a different house. The Davidsons found a trunk of his in the basement and also the fra- a metal frame of one of the beds that hung on a wall and then swung up out of the way. The Davidsons donated it to the Cortez Island Museum, which they have uh, in their possession. Years later, the Reverend Bowes lived in that house before they eventually renovated the closed clinic and moved in there. There's an interesting story. Now, what year was this? 1947, years before several roads connected Manson's Landing to the rest of the island. Frank Hayes tells the story of him and Rod Griffin, who's a relative of June Cameron's, and Lorne and Chuck Musclow. They drove from Manson's Landing in an old Model T Ford and followed the, I say road, but it's really a wagon road, the kind with two bare strips and salal growing down the middle. They started on that road up to Squirrel Cove. Then they went 
up the hill from Squirrel Cove. And Alf Layton, who used to live in Von Donop and had moved to the top of the hill, which used to be Stitchville, they took a road that had just been built by a cat, went down towards Von Donop. So you can imagine how rough it was. And Model T's had wooden spoked wheels. They got down to near Von Donop and followed the logging roads, which again were made by cats, up to Green Valley. They followed the creek up to Barrett's Lake, and then they went down the trail to Carrington Lagoon and Peter Police's place. And along there, and crossing a number of little creeks and rivers, they went on what they called fore and aft bridges that were built for the logging trucks and the cats. They were basically just two logs laid across the, a river with a great space in between them, and the top was flattened off for the wheel. They were set at the width of the wheels on the trucks. And this Model T Ford just barely fit. So it was a little iffy because the gap between the two of them could swallow the whole car. And they managed to make all the make it across all these bridges. They got along the trail, past some waterfalls, up to Coulter, and then followed the road, which again was just a wagon road, up the hill from Coulter Bay to where past where the school had been and all the way to Whaletown. They got there on boat day. As they arrived at the dock, some spokes on one of their wheels broke. The road had just been too rough. Luckily, they made it that far. And the captain of the ship was heading from there to Manson's. He took pity on these men who had basically a three-wheeled car that they would now have to try and get back to Manson's over this very rough road. He actually put the slings out and lifted the car onto the deck and them on board for nothing and took them to Manson's Landing and offloaded them at the Manson's dock. Like the ferries sometimes today, if they've left the dock and one lonely car comes down, having just missed the ferry, I've seen them back in again and load that last car if they had room and then take off a little bit late. The all the skippers on those boats were very accommodating. And I guess they got to know the people at the different stops. And the people at the different stops got to know their captains too. Whaletown was like so many places on the coast that really thrived when the Union steamships were servicing them. Besides servicing places with big wharves, they serviced logging camps and canneries and even individual farmers living up narrow inlets. In some cases, the inlets were so narrow, it was very tricky to turn the boat around to leave that inlet. There was a sort of a coastal signaling where if you hung a lantern on a dock or at the beach somewhere, even if there was no dock, it was an emergency of some sort. Any passing ship would come in. In the case of the Union steamships, They would anchor off and send a small boat in or a small boat would go out to them with, say, a logger who was badly injured. That was the only way they could get people out. There was one story about old Mr. Marley who lived up Robertson Road in the gorge. He had a whole bunch of mail he wanted to send out. He was planning to go down to the wharf about nine o'clock when the ship was supposed to come in. But he heard the whistle as it came into Whaletown four hours before that. There's no way he could get there in time because it was like a mile and a half, two miles away. 
so his mail didn't go out till the next boat. Once radios were in, the steamships, yeah, they could put out a, a message saying what time they expected to be at certain docks. So people in houses could then know that they should hurry down to the dock or they shouldn't. The stores would also know if they had a radio and be able to tell their customers the ship would be in at such and such a time. A lot of people that lived along the coast had radio phones in their house as well as their boats. And some of the stores also had those. They were mostly Spillsbury and Dahl radios that were serviced by Spillsbury, who lived on Savory Island. He serviced these radio phones all up and down the coast. He and his wife lived on their boat because they were servicing radios constantly or selling them and installing. He eventually learned how to fly and had a float plane. And that float plane um, evolved into more float planes, which then was bought out by BC Air. So Spillsbury basically started BC Air to service radios up and down the coast. The Union steamships were fairly slow. And in the 1950s, the Gulf shipping line. They took over a lot of the service. They were twice as fast as the old Union steamships. They had these old Fairmile ships from the, I think they were, I'm not sure, submarine runners in the Navy that were converted for passengers and cargo. Gulfwing took over a lot of the servicing and a number of the Union steamships were sold to the Northwest Navigation, I think it was called. The ship's names were changed again. They also acquired a number of the Gulf Wings. The Gulf Wings didn't last very long. I gather they were more costly for upkeep. And, and that's when the planes were beginning to really take over for both mail and passengers to the island. Boats became an extra and people didn't use them very much. In many cases, if you had to go by a Union steamship or some other boat to get to medical help, you didn't make it. A number of loggers actually died en route, but some of them had horrendous injuries, and who knows if they would have survived even if they got to a hospital sooner. If they went by boat, women who were pregnant went two or three weeks before the due date and spent time with a relative or whatever near a hospital and had their baby in the hospital. Once the planes started coming in regularly, they would wait a little closer to the date. So a number of those little float planes that were going back and forth to Campbell River ended up giving birth. Now, I don't know what was written on the birth certificate, because if it happened on a boat, they'd give the coordinates of where the boat was. Maybe they could do that for a plane too, I don't know. So it did help women, but it also helped with emergencies getting people that were injured out quicker to a hospital somewhere. In 1954, the Whaletown Community Club had asked the Department of Transport to put in a seaplane float since so many planes were coming in. And eventually seaplanes brought the mail instead of the ships. It took until 1957 for the seaplane float at the very end of the string of floats to become for float planes. The ships did stay on the coast, but they went into, I think, strictly freight after that. Not so much passengers. Two or three of the shipping amalgamated Gulf Line Northwest shipping and the Union Steamships. It was three companies all in one, and they started selling off ships till 
they faded. The other thing that brought business down for the steamships and the Gulf Wings was late in the 40s, outboard engines became the norm and developed very quickly. People that originally had rowboats to get around in now had faster boats with a motor on the back. This basically put a lot of that shipping out of business because people could now get to Campbell River or Powell River and pick up their own supplies. You've been listening to you've been listening to Lynn Jordan, former president of the Cortez Island Museum, talk about the twilight years of the Union Steamship Company. This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents. Goodbye. <laughs>